be really informed, you need to know what's behind the national news stories and what's going on in your neighborhood. Consider This, a new podcast from NPR and WNYC, helps you make sense of the day. Subscribe to Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear a story from 1956, The Man of the World, by Frank O'Connor. This is probably our pair, he whispered. We better not speak anymore, in case they might hear us. I nodded, wishing I had never come. The Man of the World was chosen by Julian Barnes, whose stories appear frequently in The New Yorker. His latest book, A Meditation on Death, called Nothing to be Frightened of, is out in paperback from Vintage. He joins us from a studio in London. Hi, Julian. Hi. So I know you recently edited the Everyman's Library collection, The Best of Frank O'Connor. Mm-hmm. Did you choose him for the podcast because uh, all of this work was so fresh in your mind, or has he always been important to you? He's always been important to me. I, I actually edited an earlier collection for Penguin about 10 years ago. I discovered him in a curious way. I saw an old, very old Penguin with the title, didn't, didn't look, even look at the author's name, I saw the title My Oedipus Complex and Other Stories. And I thought, that's wonderful because whoever wrote that title, My Oedipus Complex, is a real writer. A lesser writer would have written an Oedipus complex or mm-hmm. the Oedipus mm-hmm. complex. But there's something about my which makes you want to grab that story and discover that child's story. So from that moment I was hooked. And I think he's still too undervalued. I think he may even be better known in the States than he is in Ireland and in England. I think he's kept in the public consciousness partly by being on a more academic courses there. Well, and why do you think he is on more courses here? I guess because you study the short story more seriously than we do or something. Now, he, um, obviously, O'Connor was Irish. He spent quite a lot of time in the U.S. and teaching here and also published, I think, more than 50 stories in The New Yorker, and maybe that's part of the reason that he was so established here. The interesting thing is that though he lived in the States for a long time and though he discovered some of his stories there, incidents that his second wife, who was American, reported to him or people they met, he always transported his fiction back to Ireland when he wrote it. And there were stories that he discovered in England, but he he almost always took them back. He re-imported them. He transformed them into purely Irish stories. And how was he received in Ireland at the time? Oh, well, he had the usual rough ride that any Irish writer trying to tell the truth in those austere years between independence and um, the boom of the of the 80s and 90s um, had. I mean, he was, uh, his books were banned and his exile was partly to get away from what he saw as the meanness and narrowness and puritanness of the country. But at the same time, he was patriotic in the sense that anyone attacked Ireland, he would defend it. And he wrote a lot of journalism about Ireland as well. He had a regular column in which he reflected on on Irish matters, public and private and rural and urban. He was a voice in Ireland uh, until the end of his days. And well known there, despite the books being banned? Oh yes, yes, he's very well known. And in fact, I think at the moment in Ireland he slightly suffers the fate of someone who is well known enough 
to be put on courses to be read at just too young an age by adolescents who then think, oh no, I read him at school, I don't want to read him mm. now. Uh, it, it may be, this may be a, a, an exaggerated theory of mine, but perhaps now that the Irish economy has collapsed and almost gone the way of Iceland and is possibly even worse state than the British one and that austerity is coming back, then the world of Frank O'Connor will not seem quite so distant in that island of theirs than it did a few years ago. Now, O'Connor published, as I said, more than 50 stories in The New Yorker. Your collection has about 700 pages. What makes The Man of the World stand out for you? Well, I think if you're wanting to introduce someone to Frank O'Connor, perhaps the easiest way is to take one of the stories of childhood. And he writes wonderfully well about childhood. He was an only child, though William Maxwell, his editor at The New Yorker, once said that he he always behaved as if he was the oldest of a large family of boys and girls. <laughs> That's a wonderful remark. And, 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 and the reason he did, presumably, is that he invented so many children in his own work. But he understood, I think, more than most writers and remembered so well the the complexity, the unsalvable pain of childhood, its pretensions, its snobberies, its hardness, its selfishness, as well as its eternal losses. We'll talk more after the story. Now here's Julian Barnes reading The Man of the World by Frank O'Connor. When I was a kid, there were no such things as holidays for me and my likes, and I have no feeling of grievance about it. Because, in the way of kids, I simply invented them, which was much more satisfactory. One year, my summer holiday was a couple of nights I spent at the house of a friend called Jimmy Leary, who lived at the other side of the road from us. His parents sometimes went away for a couple of days to visit a sick relative in Bantry, and he was given permission to have a friend in to keep him company. I took my holiday with the greatest seriousness insisted on the loan of father's old travelling bag and dragged it myself down our lane past the neighbours standing at their doors. "'Are you off somewhere, Larry?' asked one. "'Yes, Mrs Rooney,' I said with great pride. "'Off for my holidays to the Learys.' "'Wish her, aren't you very lucky?' she said with amusement. Lucky seemed an absurd description of my good fortune. The Learys house was a big one with a high flight of steps up to the front door, which was always kept shut. They had a piano in the front room, a pair of binoculars on a table near the window, and a toilet on the stairs that seemed to me to be the last word in elegance and immodesty. We brought the binoculars up to the bedroom with us. From the window you could see the whole road up and down, from the quarry at its foot with the tiny houses perched on top of it, to the open fields at the other end, where the last gas lamp rose against the sky. Each morning I was up with the first light, leaning out the window in my nightshirt and watching through the glasses all the mysterious figures you never saw from our lane. Policemen, railwaymen and farmers on their way to market. I admired Jimmy almost as much as I admired his house, and for much the same reasons. He was a year older than I, was well-mannered and well-dressed and would not associate with most of the kids on the road at all. He had a way, when any of them joined us, of resting against a wall with his hands in his trouser pockets and listening to them with a sort of well-bred smile, a knowing smile, that seemed to me the height of elegance. And it was not that he was a softy, because he was an excellent boxer and wrestler and could easily have held his own with them any time, but he did not wish to. He was superior to them. 
He was, there is only one word that still describes it for me, sophisticated. I attributed his sophistication to the piano, the binoculars and the indoor john, and felt that if only I had the same advantages, I could have been sophisticated too. I knew I wasn't, because I was always being deceived by the world of appearances. I would take a sudden violent liking to some boy, and when I went to his house, my admiration would spread to his parents and sisters, and I would think how wonderful it must be to have such a home. But when I told Jimmy, he would smile in that knowing way of his and say quietly, I believe they had the bailiffs in a few weeks ago. And even though I didn't know what bailiffs were, bang would go the whole world of appearances, and I would realise that once again I had been deceived. It was the same with fellows and girls. Seeing some bigger chap we knew walking out with a girl for the first time, Jimmy would say casually, He'd better mind himself, that one is dynamite. And even though I knew as little of girls who were dynamite as I did of bailiffs, his tone would be sufficient to indicate that I had been taken in by sweet voices and broad-brimmed hats, gaslight and evening smells from gardens. Forty years later, I can still measure the extent of my obsession, for, though my own handwriting is almost illegible, I sometimes find myself scribbling idly on a pad in a small, stiff, perfectly legible hand that I recognise with amusement as a reasonably good forgery of Jimmy's. My admiration still lies there somewhere, a fossil in my memory, but Jimmy's knowing smile is something I have never managed to acquire. And it all goes back to my curiosity about fellows and girls. As I say, I only imagined things about them, but Jimmy knew. I was excluded from knowledge by the world of appearances that blinded and deafened me with emotion. The least thing could excite or depress me. The trees in the morning when I went to early mass, the stained-glass windows in the church, the blue hilly streets at evening with the green flare of the gas lamps, the smells of cooking and perfume even the smell of a cigarette packet that I had picked up from the gutter and crushed to my nose, all kept me at this side of the world of appearances, while Jimmy, by right of birth or breeding, was always at the other. I wanted him to tell me what it was like, but he didn't seem to be able. Then, one evening, he was listening to me talk while he leant against the pillar of his gate, his pale, neat hair framing his pale, good-humoured face. My excitability seemed to rouse in him a mixture of amusement and pity. "'Why don't you come over some night the family's away and I'll show you a few things?' he asked lightly. "'What'll you show me, Jimmy?' I asked eagerly. "'Notice the new couple that's come to live next door?' he asked, with a nod in the direction of the house above his own. "'No,' I admitted in disappointment. "'It wasn't only that I never knew anything, but I never noticed anything either.' and when he described the new family that was lodging there, I realised with chagrin that I didn't even know Mrs. McCarthy, who owned the house. Oh, they're just a newly married couple, he said. They don't know that they can be seen from our house. But how, Jimmy? Don't look up now, he said, with a dreamy smile, while his eyes strayed over my shoulder in the direction of the lane. Wait till you're going away. Their end wall is only a couple of feet from ours. 
you can see right into the bedroom from our attic. And what do they do, Jimmy? Oh, he said with a pleasant laugh, everything. You really should come. You bet I'll come, I said, trying to sound tougher than I felt. It wasn't that I saw anything wrong in it. It was rather that, for all my desire to become like Jimmy, I was afraid of what it might do to me. But it wasn't enough for me to get behind the world of appearances. I had to study the appearances themselves, and for three evenings I stood under the gas lamp at the foot of our lane, across the road from the McCarthys, till I had identified the new lodgers. The husband was the first I spotted, because he came from his work at a regular hour. He was tall, with stiff jet-black hair and a big black guardsman's moustache that somehow failed to conceal the youthfulness and ingenuousness of his face, which was long and lean. Usually he came accompanied by an older man and stood chatting for a few minutes outside his door, a black-coated, bowler-hatted figure who made large sweeping gestures with his evening paper and sometimes doubled up in an explosion of loud laughter. On the third evening I saw his wife, for she had obviously been waiting for him, looking from behind the parlour curtains, and when she saw him she scurried down the steps to join in the conversation. She had thrown an old jacket about her shoulders and stood there, her arms folded as though to protect herself further from the cold wind that blew down the hill from the open country, while her husband rested one hand fondly on her shoulder. For the first time I began to feel qualms about what I proposed to do. It was one thing to do it to people you didn't know or care about, but for me, even to recognise people was to adopt an emotional attitude towards them, and my attitude to this pair was already one of approval. They looked like people who might approve of me too. That night I remained awake, thinking out the terms of an anonymous letter that would put them on their guard till I had worked myself up into a fever of eloquence and indignation. But I knew only too well that they would recognise the villain of the letter, and that the villain would recognise me, so I did not write it. Instead, I gave way to fits of anger and moodiness against my parents. Yet even these were unreal, because on Saturday night when Mother made a parcel of my nightshirt, I had now become sufficiently self-conscious not to take a bag, I nearly broke down. There was something about my own house that night that upset me all over again. Father, with his cap over his eyes, was sitting under the wall lamp, reading the paper, and Mother, a shawl about her shoulders, was crouched over the fire from her little wickerwork chair, listening, and I realised that they, too, were part of the world of appearances I was planning to destroy. And as I said goodnight, I almost felt that I was saying goodbye to them as well. But once inside Jimmy's house, I did not care so much. It always had that effect on me, of blowing me up to twice the size, as though I were expanding to greet the piano, the binoculars and the indoor toilet. I tried to pick out a tune on the piano with one hand, and Jimmy, having listened with amusement for some time, sat down and played it himself, as I felt it should be played, and this, too, seemed to be part of his superiority. I suppose we'd better put in an appearance of going to bed, he said disdainfully. Someone across the road might notice and tell. They're in town, so I don't suppose they'll be back till late. 
We had a glass of milk in the kitchen, went upstairs, undressed and lay down, though we put our overcoats beside the bed. Jimmy had a packet of sweets but insisted on keeping them till later. We may need these before we're done, he said with his knowing smile, and again I admired his orderliness and restraint. We talked in bed for a quarter of an hour, then put out the light, got up again, donned our overcoats and socks, and tiptoed upstairs to the attic. Jimmy led the way with an electric torch. He was a fellow who thought of everything. The attic had been arranged for our vigil. Two trunks had been drawn up to the little window to act as seats, and there were even cushions on them. Looking out, you could at first see nothing but an expanse of blank wall topped with chimney stacks, but gradually you could make out the outline of a single window, eight or ten feet below. Jimmy sat beside me and opened his packet of sweets, which he laid between us. Of course, we could have stayed in bed till we heard them come in, he whispered. Usually you can hear them at the front door, but they might have come in quietly, or we might have fallen asleep. It's always best to make sure. But why don't they draw the blind? I asked as my heart began to beat uncomfortably. Because there isn't a blind, he said with a quiet chuckle. Old Mrs McCarthy never had one, and she's not going to put one in for lodgers who may be gone tomorrow. People like that never rest till they get a house of their own. I envied him his nonchalance as he sat back with his legs crossed, sucking a sweet just as though he were waiting in the cinema for the show to begin. I was scared by the darkness and the mystery, and by the sounds that came to us from the road with such extraordinary clarity. Besides, of course, it wasn't my house, and I didn't feel at home there. At any moment I expected the front door to open, and his parents to come in and catch us. We must have been waiting for half an hour before we heard voices in the roadway, the sound of a key in the latch, and then of a door opening and closing softly. Jimmy reached out and touched my arm lightly. This is probably our pair, he whispered. We'd better not speak any more, in case they might hear us. I nodded, wishing I had never come. At that moment a faint light became visible in the great expanse of black wall, a faint yellow stair-light that was just sufficient to silhouette the window-frame beneath us. Suddenly the whole room lit up. The man I had seen in the street stood by the doorway, his hand still on the switch. I could see it all plainly now, an ordinary, small, suburban bedroom with flowery wallpaper, a coloured picture of the Sacred Heart over the double bed with the big brass knobs, a wardrobe and a dressing table. The man stood there till the woman came in, removing her hat in a single wide gesture and tossing it from her into a corner of the room. He still stood by the door, taking off his tie. Then he struggled with the collar, his head raised and his face set in an agonised expression. His wife kicked off her shoes, sat on a chair by the bed and began to take off her stockings. All the time she seemed to be talking, because her head was raised, looking at him, though you couldn't hear a word she said. I glanced at Jimmy. The light from the window below softly illuminated his face as he sucked with tranquil enjoyment. The woman rose as her husband sat on the bed with his back to us and began to take off his shoes and socks in the same slow, agonised way. At one point he held up his left foot and looked at it with what might have been concern. His wife looked at it too, for a moment, 
and then swung halfway round as she unbuttoned her skirt. She undressed in swift, jerky movements, twisting and turning and apparently talking all the time. At one moment she looked into the mirror on the dressing table and touched her cheek lightly. She crouched as she took off her slip and then pulled her nightdress over her head and finished her undressing beneath it. As she removed her underclothes, she seemed to throw them anywhere at all, and I had a strong impression that there was something haphazard and disorderly about her. Her husband was different. Everything he removed seemed to be removed in order, and then put carefully where he could find it most readily in the morning. I watched him take out his watch, look at it carefully, wind it, and then hang it neatly over the bed. Then, to my surprise, she knelt by the bed, facing towards the window, glanced up at the picture of the Sacred Heart, made a large, hasty sign of the cross, and, covering her face with her hands, buried her head in the bedclothes. I looked at Jimmy in dismay, but he didn't seem to be embarrassed by the sight. The husband, his folded trousers in his hand, moved about the room slowly and carefully, as though he did not wish to disturb his wife's devotions, and when he pulled on the trousers of his pyjamas, he turned away. After that, he put on his pyjama jacket, buttoned it carefully, and knelt beside her. He too glanced respectfully at the picture and crossed himself slowly and reverently, but he did not bury his face and head as she had done. He knelt upright with nothing of the abandonment suggested by her pose and with an expression that combined reverence and self-respect. It was the expression of an employee who, while admitting that he might have a few little weaknesses like the rest of the staff, prided himself on having deserved well of the management. Women, his slightly complacent air seemed to indicate, had to adopt these emotional attitudes, but he spoke to God as one man to another. He finished his prayers before his wife. Again, he crossed himself slowly, rose and climbed into bed, glancing again at his watch as he did so. Several minutes passed before she put her hands out before her on the bed, blessed herself in her wide, sweeping way, and rose. She crossed the room in a swift movement that almost escaped me, and next moment the light went out. It was as if the window through which we had watched the scene had disappeared with it by magic, till nothing was left but a blank, black wall mounting to the chimney-pots. Jimmy rose slowly, and pointed the way out to me with his flashlight. When we got downstairs, we put on the bedroom light, and I saw on his face the virtuous and sophisticated air of a collector who has shown you all his treasures in the best possible light. Faced with that look, I could not bring myself to mention the woman at prayer, though I felt her image would be impressed on my memory till the day I died. I could not have explained to him how at that moment Everything had changed for me, how, beyond us watching the young married couple from ambush, I had felt someone else watching us, so that at once we ceased to be the observers and became the observed, and the observed in such a humiliating position that nothing I could imagine our victims doing would have been so degrading. I wanted to pray myself, but found I couldn't. Instead, I lay in bed in the darkness, covering my eyes with my hand, and I think that even then I knew that I should never be sophisticated like Jimmy, never be able to put on a knowing smile, because always 
beyond the world of appearances, I would see only eternity watching. Sometimes, of course, it's better than that, Jimmy's drowsy voice said from the darkness. You shouldn't judge it by tonight. That was Julian Barnes reading The Man of the World by Frank O'Connor, which was first published in The New Yorker in 1956. The version you just heard is from O'Connor's book Domestic Relations, which was published by Knopf and was reprinted in The Best of Frank O'Connor, edited by Julian Barnes. The New Yorker Festival is back, and it's our 21st year. Undeterred by COVID, we're coming to you virtually with a fantastic lineup, and you can enjoy it all without even putting on your shoes. Chris Rock is joining us, Jerry Seinfeld and Steve Martin too, and a performance in conversation with Fiona Apple. There's also Elizabeth Warren and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Eric Holder, and many more. You can find out everything that's happening and buy tickets at newyorker.com festival. Again, that's newyorker.com festival. See you there. Julian, O'Connor said in in a Paris Review interview that the most essential part of writing stories was having a theme or a story to tell rather than just describing personal experiences. What do you think the theme was in this story? Well, I think the theme is is deceptive, as O'Connor is often deceptive. It starts so easily, this story. You think it's about two boys, one more worldly, one more sophisticated than the other. You think it's going to be a story about discovering sex when they plan to go up to the attic and there are two warning signs early on that it's the story is going to be more complicated than that the first is the use of the phrase world of appearances this phrase recurs seven times in the story which is actually an astonishing recurrence and the other thing that you you hit on very soon afterwards is a paragraph which begins 40 years later so this schoolboy jaunt is going to have an effect throughout the life of the narrator He's now looking back from, uh, you know, his 50s or 60s and realising that he has been changed and undone by what happens. So it has a much longer and wider ripple than just what appears to be a bit of voyeurism. He thinks he might see the intimacy of sex. What he finds out about is the intimacy of religion. And what lies beyond the world of appearances at the end of this story is not some sophisticated understanding of the sort that his friend Jimmy has, but what lies out there, he says, is eternity watching. And those two words very close to the end of the story are the sort of, you know, the low two drum beats at the end of the story, even though it goes on for another paragraph. What you mentioned, the way he he has this sort of anticipation about this scene. In a sense, he's guilty in advance. He's almost going to prevent the whole thing from happening by writing an anonymous letter. So he feels guilty even going in. He has a sense of his, what his own shame is going to be. He has that sense, but it's always overcome by the, the splendour and the glamour of a house which has a pair of binoculars <laughs> and an inside toilet. Um, <laughs> on the stairs, the height of your on modesty. On the stairs as well. And he's so used to having, having a toilet at the bottom of the garden where you go and you take your shame with you. Yeah. So actually to have one inside the house strikes this small boy as an act of immodesty, just as they're going up to the attic to watch an act of immodesty as he hopes and fears. And the way that that O'Connor just drops that single adjective in gives you a whole insight into into Larry's mind and his his emotions. 
what I found curious is that knowing how emotional he is, knowing that as soon as he sort of understands who these people are, he's going to feel terrible about it. Why does he spend all this time researching them? Why does he watch for them and get to know them in advance? Almost everything that Jimmy does makes him feel inadequate. And the fact that he he hasn't even paid attention to this couple who he's going to be spying on, I, I think he he's just trying to redress that knowledge. And also he has those normal friendly instincts of wanting to know other people. I love the line where he, say, he thinks these people would approve of him. <laughs> yes, yes. That's very touching, isn't it? Yeah. Interestingly, that line is not in the New Yorker version. I don't know if he added it later or... Ah, well, O'Connor was a, was a tremendous rewriter. There's one story I know that exists in something like 50 drafts. I mean, he must have driven his, his editors wild at times because he was always taking it back and, and starting again. He had a wonderful relationship with William Maxwell, his editor at The New Yorker, and Maxwell once said sort of exasperatedly, yes, of course you are right, but I am right too, when they they were discussing some change that uh, O'Connor wanted to make or didn't want to make. Actually, I saw a letter that Maxwell wrote to O'Connor about this particular story in which he says, "I I spent three intense dedicated days going over your two versions of Man of the World protecting what I feel is one of the most moving and beautiful stories of modern times from your itch to improve it. (laughs) Um, So you get the sense of that that sort of irritation there. Well, you would understand that, wouldn't you, as New Yorker fiction editor? Well, you know, actually, I I find people rather reluctant to improve things (laughs) sometimes. I think it's it's wonderful that he that he kept at these stories and they stayed alive for him. You know, some people finish a story and move on, and for him, clearly, these things were were living. Yes. Now you said in your in your introduction to the best of Frank O'Connor that he was that I quote that comparatively rare thing in modern times, an oral prose writer. What did you mean by that? Yes, I think voice was terribly important to him. He once said that when he was trying to remember old friends, both the voice of the uh, narrator or participant as well as that of the author, which is key for him. And one of the reasons he was an anti-modernist was that he felt that modernism had destroyed the notion of the writer's voice. He thought that it had taken it up, fragmented it, ironised it. You couldn't trust it anymore. What he wanted, he said once, was uh, he wanted to keep the sound of an actual man talking. And that's what the stories often are. That's part of their cunning, um, is that they often start in a very easy way. Uh, Someone is just telling you something that happened to him, usually him, and you think, oh, this is going to be pleasant. It might even be sentimental, and it never is. It's part of the lure of his voice that he lulls you in this way before hitting you with the, with the concealed, harder truths of, of life. So you think that his, his narrators are always reliable? I don't think they're always reliable any more than anyone who tells you a story in an Irish pub is reliable. <laughs> you know, they're, they're seductive and they have a great sense of a story, but they're not reliable in the sense of godlike third-person narrators, nothing like that. And often what they reveal in the course of the story, as in the case of The Man of the World, is a realisation that they were wrong or that their take on life mm-hmm. was wrong. Mm-hmm. So they're often stories in which the narrator corrects himself or discovers how ingenuous or foolish he'd been. You mentioned earlier that you picked the story because it's told from a child's perspective and it, it is very difficult to do a child's perspective. How does he manage to do it so well? 
I wish I knew because then I could write stories <laughs> about childhood as good as Frank O'Connor's. I've never, yeah. I've never actually tried to to write with such a, a young protagonist as he has here. I guess partly it's just a question of superior memory and superior observation. There's no condescension to it. No, there's absolutely no condescension at all. And there's no uh, sugar-coatedness either. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're they're quite tough stories often about childhood. They're not poor me stories, but they're stories which understand the complication of infant psychology, it seems to me. You get a sense of that in that wonderful scene where he's saying goodnight to his parents and he suddenly thinks it might be goodbye. Yes, yes. And you, and he thinks, oh, God, once, once I get to the other side of the world of appearances, I might be even more embarrassed by them than, than I am now. <laughs> I mean, another reason I chose this story is that it opens out from beyond the way we've said it opens out. I think it has further ramifications in the autobiography and the literary attitude of O'Connor because it chimes in very well with something that he wrote in his autobiography, An Only Child, the first volume of autobiography. And I'd just like to read a couple of sentences from that, if I may. Mm -hmm, Of course. He describes how, when he was a child and he was living in this house which had a a dark kitchen and and a high wall at the back, I was always very fond of heights, and afterwards it struck me that reading was only another form of height and a more perilous one. It was a way of looking beyond your own backyard into your neighbour's. Our backyard had a high wall, and by early afternoon it made the whole kitchen dark, and when the evening was fine, I climbed the door of the outhouse and up to the roof, to the top of the wall. And then he describes how he also used to climb up to the very top of the house, onto the roof, and then he describes how he used to climb to the top of a quarry and look out to the open country. And the section ends... I felt like some sort of wild bird, secure from everything and observing everything. The horse and cart coming up the road, the little girl with her skipping rope on the pavement, or the old man staggering by on his stick, all of them unconscious of the eagle eye that watched them. I think it's fascinating where he says reading is another form of height. Yeah. And so it seems to me that we can move from these two boys up in the attic, looking down and into and onto uh, a couple uh, who are unaware of them, to the same sort of height where you are a reader and you you have that unexpected view into people's lives when they don't know that you, the reader, is looking at them. And then we can can move it on to O'Connor as the writer, also writing from a height not in a sense that implies condescension, but that implies a better view and also a view of people when they don't know you're watching. Looking down with his binoculars. Yes, exactly. Thank you so much, Julian. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Julian Barnes is the author of numerous works of fiction, including the novel Arthur and George and the story collection The Lemon Table. You can read many of his stories, essays, and book reviews online at newyorker.com. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to this and other free New Yorker podcasts in the iTunes store. You can also download the weekly audio edition of the magazine through iTunes or audible.com. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by newyorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. 